Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror content related. From interviews, reviews, top ten lists, and everything in between. If you want it, they got it. They also have an extensive library of podcasts, which I highly suggest checking out after this one. Now onto today's episode, we're going from the seven deadly sins to something a little bit more real. Now we all know that Australia is a place where everything wants to kill you, right? There's spiders the size of dinner plates, there's alligators, there's poisonous, toxic, everything. But the United States of America is a place where everybody wants to kill you. So you tell me what's worse. A place where you have to wrestle alligators or potentially wrestle your neighbor. Well, I'll leave that up for you to decide. I don't really have an opinion. I just don't want to die either way. But today we're talking about a very infamous killer. One that predates the Zodiac. This story takes place in a small town called Texarkana, which borders, as you can imagine, Texas and Arkansas. Takes place in 1946, spawned a couple of movies, and is still unsolved to this day. I'm of course talking about the Texarkana Moonlight Murders, also known as the Phantom Killer. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. It all started back in 1946, in February to be exact, February 22nd to be more exact. This killer is credited with attacking eight people within 10 weeks, five of whom were killed. Now this went on for a long time, February to May of 1946. There were no real leads, there were no real suspects, but let's just start at the beginning. On February 22nd, 1946, it was around 11.45pm on a Friday, the 22nd, Jimmy Hollis, who was 25 years old, and his girlfriend Mary Jean, who was 19 at the time, parked on a secluded road known as Lover's Lane, after having seen a movie together. The area was approximately 50 feet off Robinson Road which was an unpaved street about 100 yards from the last row of city homes. Around 10 minutes later, at 11.55pm, a man wearing a white cloth mask, which resembled a pillowcase with eye holes cut out, appeared at Hollis's driver's side door and shone a flashlight through the window. Now these kids weren't sure if it was a prank, I mean, it was the 40s. The war just ended. Prank people, right? Well, apparently not. Hollis told the man that they had the wrong person, to which the man responded, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do as I say. Both Hollis and his girlfriend, Mary Jean, were ordered out of the driver's side door, and the man ordered Hollis to take off his goddamn britches. That's a quote. After he complied, the man struck him in the head twice with a pistol. Mary Jean later told investigators that the noise was so loud she had initially thought Hollis had been shot, when it had actually been his skull fracturing. Yikes. Thinking the assailant wanted to rob them, 
Mary showed him Hollis's wallet to prove that he had no money, after which she was struck with a blunt object, presumably another pistol whip. The assailant ordered her to stand, and when she did, told her to run. Initially, she tried to flee towards a ditch, but the assailant ordered her to run in a different direction up the road. Mary spotted an old car parked off the road, but found it empty, and was again confronted by the attacker, who asked her why she was running. When she responded that he had told her to do so, he called her a liar before knocking her down and sexually assaulting her with the barrel of his gun. Quick psychological note here, usually that means this guy's impotent. Can't get it up himself, so he uses a surrogate. But I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist or any of those people, but that's just kind of what I've heard in my research and so on and so forth. Anywho, after the assault, Mary fled on foot, running half a mile to a nearby house. She attempted to call for a passing car, but... She was ignored. Mary was able to awaken the residents of the house and phone the police. Meanwhile, Hollis had regained consciousness and managed to flag down a passerby on Richmond Road. The motorist left Hollis at the scene and drove to a nearby funeral home where he was able to call the police. Within 30 minutes, Bowie County Sheriff, W.H. Bill Presley, and three other officers arrived at the scene of the attack but the assailant had already left, obviously. They found Hollis's pants 100 yards away from the parked car. Mary was hospitalized overnight for a minor head wound. Hollis was hospitalized for several days to recover from multiple skull fractures, but both survived the attack. Hollis and Mary gave conflicting reports to law enforcement as to what their attacker looked like. Mary claimed the man was wearing a white bag over his head with cutouts for eyes and a mouth, but that she could see under the mask that he was apparently African-American. Hollis alternatively claimed that the man was white and around 30 years old, but conceded he could not distinguish his features as he had been blinded with a flashlight. Both agreed that the assailant was around 6 feet tall. Law enforcement repeatedly challenged Mary's account and believed that she and Hollis knew the identity of their attacker and were covering for him for some strange fucking reason. The next attack came about a month later, and it was the first time lives were lost. This was on March 24th, 1946, when Richard L. Griffin and his girlfriend of six weeks, Polly Ann Moore, age 17, that's quite the age difference, were found dead on Griffin's 1941 Oldsmobile sedan on Sunday, March 24th, 1946, between 8.30 and 9 a.m. by a passing motorist. The motorist saw the car parked on Lover's Lane, named a rich road now, or South Robinson, near a railroad spur 100 yards south of U.S. Highway 67 West, close to a night spot called the Club Dallas. The motorist at first thought that both were asleep. Griffin was found between the front seats on his knees with his head resting on the crossed hands and his pockets turned inside out. Moore was found sprawled face down in the back seat. There's evidence, however, to suggest she was killed on a blanket outside of the car and then placed back inside. Griffin had been shot twice while still in the car, 
Both had been shot once in the back of the head and both were fully clothed. A blood-soaked patch of earth near the car suggested to the police that they had been killed outside the car and then placed back inside. Congealed blood was found covering the running board and it had flowed through the bottom of the car. A 32 cartridge shell was also found, possibly shot from a Colt pistol wrapped in a blanket. No extent reports indicate that either Griffin or Moore were examined by a pathologist. A local rumor had it that a sexual assault had also occurred, but modern reports refute this. In response to the murders, police launched a citywide investigation with the Texas and Arkansas police departments. The FBI also were involved. By March 27th, local police had interviewed around 50 to 60 witnesses, including patrons and employees of the Dallas Club, a local bar near the crime scene you may remember. By March 30th, police had posted a $500 reward in an effort to gain any new information on the Griffin and Moore case that would lead to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible. However, the rewards yielded no real clues or suspects, instead producing over 100 false claims. Rewards are kinda like torture. You get a lot of information, sure, none of it good. None of it at all. Terrible. Absolutely. I also want to point out at this point, I don't believe these two attacks were linked. At least not yet. Now, not quite a month later, we have another double murder on April 13th, 1946. Which means this guy went from about 32 days between murders to around 20-ish days. So... What does that tell us? Well, in my experience, that means he is accelerating his attack patterns. Meaning, whatever gets this guy off for killing people or attacking people, controlling people, whatever he does, isn't lasting as long. The high, the arousal, the memories, whatever he uses in between attacks isn't working anymore. Think of it as like a drug addict who needs a little bit more each time he gets high. And then he needs a little bit more often to get high until there's a needle in his arm every day. That's very similar with serial killers. The cooling off period tends to shrink rather than expand. And that usually comes to a head in like a police shootout or something because he just doesn't know what to do and he doesn't care anymore. But we'll get to that later or next episode. I don't know. This might be two parts. On the evening of Saturday, April 13th, Betty Jo Booker, age 15, was playing her alto saxophone in her regular weekly gig with her band, the Rhythmeries, that's a great name, at the VFW Club at West 4th and Oak Street. Around 1.30 on Sunday morning, April 14th, her friend Paul Martin, aged 17, arrived to pick her up from the performance. This was the last time the pair were seen alive. Martin's body was found around 6.30 a.m. that same morning by Mr. and Mrs. G.H. Weaver and their son, lying on his left side on the northern edge of North Park Road. Blood was found further down on the other side of the road by a fence. He'd been shot four times, once through the nose, again through the left fourth rib from behind, a third time in the right hand, and finally through the back of the head, which matches up with the last murder. 
Booker's body was not found until 11.30 a.m., almost two miles away from Martin's body behind a tree. She was found by members of the Boyd family along with their friend, Ted, who had joined the search party. Her body was lying on its back, fully clothed, with the right hand in the pocket of her buttoned overcoat. Booker had been shot twice, once through the chest and once in the face. The weapon used was the same as the first double murder, a 32 automatic Colt pistol. Martin's 1946 Ford Coupe was found about three miles from Booker's body and 1.5 miles from his body. It was parked outside Spring Lake Park with the keys still in it. The authorities were not sure who was shot first. Sheriff Presley and the Texas Ranger Captain Manuel Gonzalez said that the examinations of the body indicated that both had been put through a terrific struggle. Martin's friend, Tom Albrighton, said he did not believe an argument had happened between the victims and that Martin had not had any enemies. Law enforcement was unable to locate Booker's saxophone at the crime. However, the saxophone was eventually discovered around six months later, on October 24th, still in its black imitation leather case, in an underbrush where Booker's body had been found. Now a reward exceeding $1,700 had accrued for information leading to the person or persons responsible. Rumors circulated throughout the area, with one rumor suggesting a local minister had turned in his own son as a suspect in the Martin Booker murders. On April 18th, Captain Gonzalez issued a statement to the public during a press conference verifying that the murderer had not been caught and that the rumors circulating among the public and in the newspaper were a hindrance to the investigation and harmful to innocent persons. That's a direct quote. Now, three weeks later, again, we're shortening the time frame between attacks. We have May 3rd, 1946, and these were the final attacks. On Friday, May 3rd, sometime before 9 p.m., Virgil Starks, age 37, a farmer and welder, was in his modest ranch-style house on a 500-acre farm off of Highway 67 East, almost 10 miles northeast of Texarkana. He turned on his favorite weekly radio show, and his wife, Katie, age 36, gave him a heating pad for his sore back. He sat in his armchair in the sitting room, which was just off the kitchen in the bedroom, while Katie was in her bedroom, lying on the bed in her nightgown. She heard something from the backyard and asked Virgil to turn on the radio. Seconds later, while Virgil was reading the May 3rd edition of the Texarkana Gazette, two shots were fired into the back of his head from a closed double window about three feet away. Katie did not hear the gunshots. Instead, she heard what sounded like the breaking of glass. She thought Virgil had dropped something and wanted to see what happened. As she entered the doorway to the living room, she saw Virgil stand up and then suddenly slump back into his chair. She saw blood, then ran to him, lifted up his head. When she realized he was dead, she ran to the phone to call the police. She rang the wall crank phone two times before being shot in the face from the same window. One bullet entered her right cheek and exited behind her left ear. The other went just below her lip, breaking her jaw 
and splintering out several teeth before lodging under her tongue. She dropped to her knees but soon managed to get back to her feet. She ran to get a pistol from the living room but was blinded by her own blood. She heard the killer tearing loose the rusted screen wire on the back porch. She thought she was going to be killed. So she stumbled towards her bedroom near the front of the house to leave a note. Meanwhile, the killer ran to the back of the house and made his way up the steps and into the side screened porch through the back screen door. She heard the killer coming through the kitchen window, so she turned around and ran through the dining room, through the bedroom, down a hallway, through another bedroom, and then into the living room and out the front door, leaving behind a, quote, virtual river of blood and teeth throughout the house and across the street. Barefoot and still in her blood-soaked nightgown, she ran across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house. Because no one was home, she ran 50 yards more to A.V. Prater's house. Prater answered her call for help. She gasped, Virgil's dead, then collapsed. Prater shot a rifle in the air to summon another neighbor, Elmer Taylor, who Prater sent to collect his car. Taylor complied and along with the Prater family took Katie Starks to Michael Meager Hospital, now Miller County Hospital Unit. At 503 Walnut Street, Mrs. Starks gave Taylor one of her teeth with a gold filling by way of thanks. She was in a semi-conscious state, slumping forward on the front seat. Although she lost a considerable amount of blood, she showed no signs of going into shock, and her heart rate remained fairly normal. She was questioned in the operating room by Miller County Sheriff W.E. Davis, who became head investigator. The news was printed on the front page the next morning, Saturday, May the 4th, reading, Murder Rocks City Again, Farmer Slain, Wife Wounded. Four days later, Sheriff Davis talked with Mrs. Starks again at the hospital, where she discounted a circulating rumor that Virgil had heard a car outside their home several nights in a row and feared being killed. Next up, we have the investigation and post events. We'll also go into some suspects. We'll also go into the investigators themselves. But that'll be on the second part of the Texarkana murders. The Texarkana Moonlight murders. The Phantom Killer of Texarkana. Whatever you want to call it. We'll have that for you next week. My name is Casey, and this has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, feel free to leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever it's called on your device. Any five-star review will be read out on the show, so it's a great way to get a shout-out and to make your favorite podcast host feel super great and special inside. I also have some social media you can follow along on, although it's not super active. You can follow along on Twitter at HorrorShotsProd, as in production. Or you can follow along on Instagram at OminousOriginsPod. Or on Facebook at HorrorShots. So, thanks for listening, and until next time.